This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Uh, and I'm here with a special guest, uh, Professor Holly Lawford-Smith, who is an associate professor of political philosophy in Melbourne in Australia. And we're here uh, to talk about her new book. Uh, I guess you can't see that. Can't. Gender Critical <laughs> Feminism. <laughs> you almost uh, can, really close up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's, it, this is what it looks like. Gender Critical Feminism, and it was uh, published uh, by Oxford University Press just this past spring, spring of 2022. And uh, we're going to talk uh, about the book. We're going to talk about some of the sort of um, background, the background uh, sort of social, political, and professional context in which uh, the book was published. Um, and so I thought we'd start, if uh, Holly doesn't mind, by uh, hearing a little bit from her about how she became interested in the topics that she discusses in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, looking at your background, you have been publishing for years on topics in political uh, philosophy. You've been thinking about climate change and collective action and collective responsibility uh, before that, or maybe simultaneously, but certainly before that as well. Um, you were uh, thinking about political uh, feasibility, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and so this uh, turn towards really focusing on feminism is a relatively new topic for you. So I'm just curious, how did you start thinking about this? Why do you find it important and interesting and, and so on? Mm. Just to start forwards and then go back. This is quite funny because yeah. at my book launch in the UK, uh, Kathleen Stock was one of the uh, sort of people involved and we did this sort of interview live chat thing and she said what do you think about the like moral responsibility or collective responsibility for what's going on now with feminism and trans activism and I was like oh yeah. I don't know <laughs> it was so funny because <laughs> it was such a like classic part of my work for the last 10, 10 years or so and it was just like not remotely an aspect of my thinking about this project so yeah it was kind of strange it, it has been a really big pivot um that sounds like a new paper idea maybe, maybe it was as soon as she said it i thought oh yeah that is something i should have a view on um yeah <laughs> yeah so um i don't know i mean i i tend to have this typical origin story which involves kathleen's medium essay but i was thinking about it the other day and it and it actually started earlier than that. When I first got to the University of Melbourne, it was in the first few months of getting here, so that's early 2017, Cordelia Fine was giving a public lecture. And of course, she, I think, was at the time publicizing Testosterone Rex, which must have come out sort of recently around that time. And it was my first experience with a trans activist. There was a trans activist in the audience. I didn't know the type at the time. I didn't know the behavior. But there was this person who just went off in the question time about the fact that she had talked about the two sexes and testosterone's role in the male sex. And this person seemed so furious that she had called one of the systems male and one of the systems female. And it was like fascinating to me how social norm violating this person in the audience was like they were just so aggressive and and unreasonable um so i just found it all like quirky i didn't know that's a a movement <laughs> yeah. and i remember talking to cordelia about it afterwards like what the hell that was so strange 
And then, yeah, it was um, kind of probably six months after that, I became aware one of our PhD students was being um, ostracized by other students because she had what I would then later understand were gender critical views, but I just kind of had heard these vague, oh, people are calling her these slurs and she has the wrong feminism. Well, what do I know about feminism? Like, I don't know. So I remember having a coffee with her to try to find out how things were going and offer some support, but it was like a personal thing, right? It wasn't about the intricacies of the debate. Um, and then it was sometime later in 2018 when Kathleen wrote her um, essay for Medium that kicked off all of the pushback against her uh, asking mm. about the uh, Gender Recognition Act consultation in the UK. And then that's when I really got brought in because I was like, this is how they're treating her is just outrageous. And that's what sucked me into like curiosity to learn more, fury about how philosophers were reacting to that, and then just kind of getting down the rabbit hole and becoming curious enough to start working on it. Okay, so as a so you 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 became sort of interested in the substance of the debate via what was going on professionally, yeah, uh, and what you were witnessing and how how other philosophers, namely Kathleen Stock. Uh, were being treated by other philosophers and by people in general. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so on sort of very, very closely related to that, before we get into the book, I want to talk a little bit more about these sorts of um, this sort of background, these background, um, this environment. Um, you have faced uh, quite a bit of, well, it goes stronger than criticism because um, you faced more non-intellectual criticism than criticism. Mm. Um, so, you know, with respect to this, uh, your new book, which just out in the spring, there was an open letter. I'm not sure whether it really qualifies for an open letter. I know the signatories uh, were never made not public. public. Yeah. They were made public? No, they were never made public. They were never made public, which I found a bit curious. Yeah. Um, usually open letters, you've got um, uh, public uh, signatures, signatories. So, uh, but in any case, there was this uh, uh, letter, and, and it wasn't written by a philosopher. I think it was written by a professor of English or something like that. Um, and the the point of the letter was to express this sort of grave concern to Oxford University Press that they were publishing. Uh, and there were a number of sort of objections. One was that you know you're just generally a bigot. Um, and a transphobe, and it's uh, unfortunate that OUP would be soiling themselves, you know, this kind of talk. Um, and then there was this, uh, this sort of proto-substantive objection about what gender-critical feminism is. It's not a field. Uh, I don't think anybody ever claims it's a field. It's a substantive position, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that letter uh, got some traction, at least online. Presumably, there were people signing it. Presumably, some philosophers were signing it. Um, but Oxford responded by saying, uh, oh, yeah, then there were worries, you know, did the right people review it? Did you say, you know, like, here, here are some of our friends that you should have sent it to? <laughs> yeah. uh, people, right. Um, did, you know, here are some examples of the sorts of people that you should have sent it to to review. Um, and how did this, how could this possibly have been published by a reputable press? That was the kind of general tenor of one of the worries. Yeah. Um, OUP responded by saying, of course, we have um, mechanisms in place to ensure that the review process um, is robust and, and so on. But how, um, 
sort of an odd letter. Um, there were uh, no substantive objections to the book because nobody had read it yet. Right. Um, but there were these sort of these pointing like, well, these people have said that she's transphobic, right? And those people, if you look at what they say, it's that somebody else has said they're transphobic. And so it's like, so long as somebody has the, the chutzpah to throw the first stone, then everybody else just points there's this line of pointing at the first, and it ultimately goes down to the first stone thrower, who uh, very often doesn't raise a substantive debate. So how does this, um, um, what, what do you make of this sort of dynamic where uh, books are criticized before they come out and people are um, labeled uh, bigots and so forth um, on the basis of what other people have accused them of being, but without ever raising substantive objections to the view yeah. Something you yeah i mean it's very strange i suppose they had uh what, what we would call you know philosophers would call like a folk conception of gender critical feminism right they from their side of the debate so they had a sense of oh that's just like people who hate trans people don't want trans people to have rights whatever hyperbolic inflated beliefs they like to attribute to the whole feminist crowd okay oh now there's a book that has the name of that movement that I hate and don't really understand and have never been able to like articulate its claims oh then the book must have this content right so there's this huge leaps in reasoning but okay now yeah. it's a big threat that this prestigious publisher is publishing this book with the name of a movement that I hate um, so now I must oppose that because I oppose its values at their core, regardless of this author or what she could possibly have to say. I take it that's the move. I can't actually remember how much the letters were targeting me as a person and things I have done or just what the book must be about, given what it's called. Do you remember? I just can't really remember. <laughs> There was both. I recently reread it. Um, there were, you know, there were, they were pointing at the fact that um, the, your university had released some statements about your work, I believe. And so that was an indication that there must be, you know, where there's, it's kind of where there's smoke, there's fire uh, um, kind of approach. So there were, I mean, there, was de there were definitely accusations against uh, you being transphobic and having said things and done things that seem to express uh, a hostility and bigotry towards trans people and that you want to, you know, that, that you're um, questioning their right to exist and this sort of eliminationist language. Always that sort of, phrase, always, that yeah. exist. Ugh, yeah, it's so annoying. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, and, and, and you've, you, there's been similar sorts of, um, I don't really want to call them concerns, but similar sorts of expressions of disapproval on um, in the in the professional philosophy world, right? On some philosophy blogs and so forth, yeah. the way things are framed, um, right? That uh, you're being criticized for a transphobic website um, and so forth, but very few substantive criticisms of gender critical feminism, right? Um, and so, do you have you seen? Uh, you clearly, you know, you're you're engaged in this uh, uh, much more deeply than I am. Have you gotten via email, via other um, sort of venues, people raising substantive critiques of your position, or is it by and large these sorts of hand wavy accusations of wanting to eliminate people and so forth? The latter, never. 
has anyone got in touch with a substantive disagreement? The entire approach from that side, whether it's academics or activists, is like hostile ignoring, hashtag no debating, never yes. inviting you anywhere yes. to anything. So the, the feeling for the last four years or so has just been of being kind of blacklisted. Um, yes. So I'm, of course, dying for substantial criticism. <laughs> yeah. And I've said this before in other kind of places. I'm. It's extremely um, frustrating to me to have to do their work for them as well as my own. Normally in philosophy, right, you have your interlocutors and all you have to yeah. do is kind of show up to the workshop or to the departmental right. seminar where you know at least one of your opponents is going to be. And they do their own work. But in, it's such a strange thing in this debate. People who are working in this area, Alex Byrne, Thomas Bogardas, Kathleen Stock, you know, we are all like having to and to do all their work to be charitable enough to their positions to then arguing against their positions. Yes. But it's all this conversation yeah. with ourselves against the wall because they're not there. So it's really very strange compared to other ways of doing philosophy. Yeah, that, no, I've noticed that too, and I can't think of another kind of debate where where that and there's a plenty of really controversial debates in philosophy i work in applied ethics i work in bioethics and so you know life, questions of life and death there are people who write about race which is another extremely yeah. important and and sensitive topic where the stakes are really high yeah. people give different accounts of race uh different accounts of racism and it seems like even where people strongly disagree, they disagree on the substance. Yes. And um, at least they can disagree with, on the substance. They might also think that someone's a jerk. They might also think that someone's doing something that is unjust, but they explain why that is and what the connection is between the substantive view and the purported you know, harm or, or what have you. And you just don't see that um, in this debate. Yeah. Um, so before... Book, I, I just wanted to, to talk about one other thing that I find sort of fascinating about, about this debate, um, much of which seems to occur at the level of sort of public relations rather than, you know, uh, philosophical substance. Um, but we saw this in a not uh, a fairly recent piece by Judith Butler in The Guardian, uh, where gender critical feminism was sort of lumped in with sort of right wing fascist movements. Um, we know uh, very well in the United States because we have a kind of, you know, sexually puritanical culture and we have a real sort of um, problem. It's gotten worse over the last, whatever it's been, uh, six years, but it's always been there um, with anti-LGBT uh, sentiment. And the right has really jumped on this debate um, because they see that it's strategically um, beneficial for them to do so. And then you get this kind of polarization. I don't know what things are like in Australia, where if anybody raises questions about, I don't know, pediatric gender care or about single sex spaces, um, what immediately pops into the heads of most people who aren't following these things very closely and who aren't reading the arguments is like, oh, this is just another Donald Trump kind of apologist here. This is, it's us versus them. Um, most people these days, most sort of quote-unquote good liberals are on board with LGBT rights. Yeah. You add the T to that, and it must be another example of what's going on here. They don't find it 
at all puzzling that some of the biggest targets have been lesbians. I don't know who, why that doesn't raise any flags for them. Um, that is targets of, of the sort of trans, sort of more extreme trans rights activists. Um, but I, I, you know, when you look at the, some of the most prominent gender critical feminists, we're not talking about the Donald Trumps of the world, right? We're talking about people with long histories of um, working on behalf of the rights of sexual minorities, racial minorities, people who describe themselves as socialists, people who are certainly well to the left of the center, whether it's in the UK or United States. Yeah. Um, and it's a really unfortunate sort of form of polarization where it gets sucked into these larger culture war issues and people can simply say you're either with us or you're with them. And yeah. it, whether things like in Australia, is that a similar dynamic? I'm not familiar with Australian um, sort of politics. Um, I think it's not exactly a similar dynamic. I think we're sort of lucky that the UK got so far ahead of this before it came here and I think we actually got it before you did in a way um, and that helped because of course if America gets anything first there's just this sort of like cultural dominance right where it's like sets the tone for everything else but I think because it was so clear that there were so many left-wing and sort of centrist and trade unionist women involved yeah. in the UK and we sort of got it like on the tails of them all the legal changes started happening in Victoria in like 20. 19 i think um so i think we had that advantage being able to sort of frame it off the back of that there was a bit of that sort of polarization just this year when a conservative politically conservative gender critical woman who had been spearheading the save women's sports group here she ran for a position in the liberal party which is our conservative party and then they the media just went to town on her position on yeah. trans things trying to sort of turn it into a polarized issue and that yeah. had some success she became like the most i think she was the second most talked about political figure after the prime minister during that period so um it did sort of bring the issues up in that politically polarized way but it's been really, i don't know what you think of this but i've sort of noticed right from the start and actually some of the philosophers were guilty of this there was this sort of manipulative pressure for left-wing feminists in other countries with completely different politics like uk and australia you know where there is already very minimal gatekeeping for transition for example and we're talking about moving to self-id instead of seven counseling sessions but there was all this pressure from the us feminists that we don't risk the US somehow getting the wrong politics on trans issues, as though every uh. feminist ever in the world should shut up just in case that has some impact on the left-wing priorities in the United States, which I just find the most like self-centered, bizarre stuff I've ever come across. <laughs> like, I don't, do you... We, we, we Americans know that, right? I mean, we're the center of the world. Yeah, like what? I don't mean that. Unselfconsciously. Like what? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not endorsing that. But, yeah. But we see, um, I mean, it's, it's, you notice when, I mean, this isn't a, a, any kind of novel point, but you notice when you, when you travel, when you watch news in other countries, they're talking about other, it's very rare for us to be um, thinking about other countries and other perspectives. We're very much uh, a, a very sort of provincial country in, in that regard. 
And because of the election of Donald Trump, I mean, mm-hmm. it broke a lot of people's brains. Mm-hmm. And the dangers are very, very real. And so I think there's a kind of um, a real reluctance or a hesitance, a hesitation about taking a stand that could be perceived as in any way helping these very harmful elements in, in U.S. politics, right? And so you just either stay away from it yeah. or you kind of throw your lot in with the people who you see as generally on your side of things. Yeah, right. But to the point that like they're actively trashing left-wing yes. feminists in other countries for wanting to retain a tiny margin of safeguarding within a very like leftist set of positions just yes. in order to defend a left-wing against a right-wing position in the U.S., with not just no nuance <laughs> like I just I don't know I've just found it absolutely striking and I almost couldn't believe that's what was happening when it started happening but it just became clearer and clearer that that was that what was happening it. yeah um and I think Jason, uh, Jason Stanley actually I think has almost said that explicitly that there was something recently where he was almost just saying that outright oh, he- yeah, well, I, I, I don't know if we're re- referencing the same thing, but I know he, this was on Twitter uh, where he has a large following. And I think, you know, he had gotten into it with some, uh, a lot of British uh, feminists, gender critical feminists, because I, I can't remember how he intervened in the, these discussions. Um, but at one point he just said, you know, I just, I just see what the Nazis are saying and I believe the opposite or something like that. Yeah. Um, and there's, uh, it's nice to see it said explicitly because yeah. there is a lot of, there is a lot of that going on. And if you try to ask more substantive, what well, do you mean to say, right, that it's okay, for example, for 13-year-old girls to have mastectomies or for, um, um, do, do, you, do you think it's right that um, trans women are women in every possible sense of the term, every plausible sense of the term, and for all political purposes, you'll never get a response. Mm. I mean, you know, you get, and I've, I've tried this. Once you ask sort of the substantive questions, you generally get people not willing to respond because they sense the tension between, on the one hand, saying something they worry rightly will come off as being absurd. Yeah. But on the other hand, saying something that will, that will alienate that, that sort of their political, their, what they perceive to be as their broad political coalition. Right. Um, and so it remains on the, it stays on the level of the us versus them. It's very difficult to have a, a, a substantive, I mean, a discussion on the actual arguments, the first the sort of first order debate, which is the most important debate, at least if you're coming, if you're approaching this as, as a philosopher, but or even you, as a political activist. Do you think that they are mainly scared about being kind of piled on or cancelled within the tribe? Or do you think that they're kind of virtue signaling and and sort of doing it themselves like they want to do everything they can to show that they're left-wing and that this is their people and they hate that is it like what's the is it fear or is it virtue well, I, I think I, I think part of it and I don't, I'm not talking about Jason Stanley here no just but, but anyone general, who does that yeah, yeah in general I think part of it is ignorance of the substantive debates I mean you know not everybody finds this stuff super interesting. Not everybody follows it closely. Not everybody cares. And that's fine. It's a complex world. Not everybody has to care about sex and gender, right? So there there, there are kind of useful heuristics. It is a useful heuristic. And if Donald Trump says something that's a noble thing, then it's, you you have some reason to think maybe it's not, right? (laughs) And so 
So, so I think there's some of that going on, which is just kind of um, what we all do. We defer our judgment to people we trust. And, and so there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, okay. Um, but for the people who actually do know something is um, a fear about saying something or doing something that would lead them to be alienated from the people who they feel to be supporting something like that. Right? Yeah. The, feeling of, the feelings of people who they think it's very important um, to protect, right? Um, so I think it's a, it's, it's a mixture of things. Yeah, okay. Sorry, I was... Um, no, can I just tell you before you move on, your um your sound is absolutely fine, but your face is sometimes freezing. I don't know if you yeah. if you care, but I, I will just yeah I might I just got a note thing that my internet connection was unstable, so I think that's just going to happen. I don't have yeah, terrific okay. internet. Right now. Okay, it's it, yeah, the um, voice has been totally fine, but just sometimes you're freezing, and then sometimes you'll come right and yeah. Okay, as long as, I mean I think it's more important that my the voice, voice comes exactly. Through. I agree. Yeah. Um, I'll let you know if you freeze for like 10 minutes in a really unattractive pose to yeah, <laughs> reset it. Right. <laughs> um, so, all right. So let's, let's, um, let's get into the book. Um, and I thought maybe we could start with you giving just a general overview of what you are hoping, what the aim of the central aim or aims of the book is, what you're hoping to accomplish, mm -hmm. uh, what you're hoping the book will stimulate in terms of scholarly um, debate and discussions on these issues. And then, and then we'll get into some of the I had some objections or questions about some of the points you make in the book. Yeah, cool. Um, so the book is really about the movement, gender critical feminism, as it has kind of emerged uh, in the last, I don't know what, 10, less than 10 years or so, um, trying to figure out sort of what it's about or what rationalizes it. One of my big concerns was to actually try to show slash argue that it's um, strongly continuous with radical feminism, the kind of second wave feminist uh, theory and movement, and to try to sort of draw strong lines between the two. And part of that is like, because I just think it's true, but part of it is also sort of like hoping to make it true. <laughs> um, so sort of both of those things at once, because I think there's some people that are gender critical or think of themselves that way. They came into it via opposition to some of gender identity ideology they're really motivated by thinking this is kind of wrong to women but they haven't fully conceptualized themselves yet as feminists in this broader way right so they maybe still think they're just opposing this specific ideology but they haven't tracked through but why do I care so much about that like why is sex important and what is this class group of female people, what are their interests and how has their history uh, led them to this point where we need a kind of politics. So I'm sort of trying to do that work. I guess I'm mainly speaking to the movement, kind of trying to give it a self-conception and a way to organize and think about its priorities and its constituency. And maybe I'm a bit speaking to people that are curious and have kind of heard about that movement and wonder what it is and if it's a fascist. Um, uh, yeah, and then I'm also sort of just being a philosopher, right, which is like, 
is there some consistent story to tell about a kind of sex-based feminist movement, which sounds so stupid and like 40 years ago, that's just feminism, right? But somehow now it's a dissident um, heterodox position to say that there could be a movement that's just about half the population of the whole world because that's weirdly exclusionary and non-intersectional. And so I'm just trying out like defending some ideas and critiquing some mainstream orthodox feminist positions that I think are poorly thought through and yeah so it's kind of doing a few different things but but that's the the main stuff right yeah so in, in reading the book one of the things I found um striking is it really um it, it's responsive to the point you just made where what you're describing as gender critical feminism is what I just always took to be feminist. feminist. I mean, this is, these are not, even calling it radical, at the time it was radical, Yeah. right? But I mean, we're in 2022, we're not in 1950. And so it's, so I, I it is puzzling. And part of this has to do with, I, I haven't, so you talk about this a little bit in the book, and maybe this is worth sort of pausing on for a minute, about the way that women's studies departments have sort of transitioned into being um, gender studies departments. Yeah. And so, what happened? I mean, do you know what sort of happened um, in the scholarly community such that those sorts of positions uh, that, that we saw in what you're calling second wave, um, they were taken, I don't know if they were just taken to have been established. And so it's sort of like, yay, anybody who has a basic education understands these things. Um, now let's talk about things that are more cutting edge. Now let's talk about things that are more kind of um, the, um, the things that haven't been established, sort of. So, so now we get sort of queer studies and gender. What what happened there, such that uh, over the last couple decades or something like that, few decades, um, those positions have to be kind of unearthed, mm. right? I mean, the, the sort of second wave feminist uh, positions, and now they're viewed as by many people as being somehow fascist or something like that. And it's very yeah. strange. It's really strange. Yeah, I actually don't know what the kind of historical explanation of the changes is all I do in the book is sort of track that there was this period of flourishing high numbers of women's studies departments right and that it's really important to them that they were about women and by women um, and then just somehow some quite short period later almost all of them have become gender studies or women's and gender studies and I think a few cases but I don't know exactly what explains that. I mean, I guess we do know that in that sort of 70s liberation movement, identity politics period, there were A, other liberation movements, so sexual orientation movements and, and race movements. And we know there was this emergence of kind of queer theory, queer studies, gay and lesbian studies. Um, so plausibly women's studies, I guess might have just been the place that ended up seeming like the natural home for some of that. And yeah. then of course, as soon as you bring in new theory and methodology and people, you're expanding out what your scope is. But yeah, I don't actually know, even in one specific case like Sydney or whatever, I don't know what actually happened there that meant they ended up with this broader agenda. Of course, I know in feminism in general, sort of what these idea shifts were, toward intersectionality or toward liberal individualism or, or neoliberalism and 
Um, that of course changed the nature of how feminists themselves were thinking about their departments and their projects. Um, but again, it's not clear if that's going to be the full explanation of the like shift to gender studies, which has a whole different like theory and methodology. Um, yeah, it will be really interesting to find out actually. Yeah, no, I think it's, it sounds like something that some intellectual historian could do the kind of work. Yeah. Um, so, uh, say what gender critical feminism is. You just cut out quite a lot. Can you say um, that last bit again? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, can you say uh, what you take gender critical? What's the what's the position? What is gender critical feminism? And then after you answer that, I have a, a follow up question. I think it's very simple. I think it is a uh, a feminism for and about women as a sex cast. So the important mm -hmm. ingredients are sex <laughs> for female people uh, and cast slash class. It's somehow about women being. I say oppressed because to me I don't think that word has so much baggage that it makes you want to vomit when you say it, but I know some people feel that way. So you could say marginalized, disadvantaged, having a history of repression or constraint, whatever you like. I don't think anyone's going to quibble that there was that history. We can argue about what women's position is now, but it's a, a sex-based group that has a particular history and is maybe still kind of struggling to emerge from that history. So it's a politics about those people and for their equality slash freedom. And by those people, you're referring to female, female people. people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and in the book, you are contrasting gender critical feminism with what you call, I believe, liberal feminism. Um, I think I, <laughs> this is, sorry, it's just a slightly interesting issue because I think in like early drafts, I called it liberal feminism. And then there was this whole thing with the publisher what they should be called uh, okay. and part of that I think was actually quite helpful because in the colloquial sense that's the term we all use lib femmes and we know what we mean like the ones that say porn is empowering and sex workers work and trans women are women and they're just kind of relentlessly spouting orthodoxies um, but there was this question about what about the real liberal feminists like and there are two i think <laughs> or maybe there's five but you know the real liberals who take it seriously how to be both a feminist and a liberal and have carved out a position so it's slightly yeah. misleading to so there was this whole terminological thing and i think i ended up actually avoiding calling them much of anything i said something like the dominant form of feminism or mainstream feminism or orthodox feminism or whatever so that's set up as the opponent but it's colloquially what we mean as when we say lib okay. on twitter yeah sorry that was a lengthy so, aside no 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 no. that's helpful i just think there might, there might be some places where you use that term so that's why i i used it um but whatever we want to call it it's the alternative to uh gender critical feminism so maybe say just a bit about what you take that alternative to be how it differs from gender critical feminism. Yeah. Oh yeah. In lots of ways. <laughs> so I think it's very committed to this sort of um, 
liberal individualism that's become very centered on ideas about choice and autonomy within the framework that we currently have. So it's very much about like whatever a woman chooses is a feminist choice and we don't criticize her for choosing things that we might want to say are um, patriarchy enforcing like getting cosmetic surgery or wearing a lot of makeup or dating a certain kind of men or whatever else, right? If she chooses sex work, that's her empowered choice. So it's partly about that. It's partly just about this kind of commitment to a set of orthodoxies, which I don't actually think are um, unified by any theory, really. It's just like there's this set of mantras that that group of feminists tend to be committed to. Feminism has to be intersectional now. Um, you can't be an essentialist. They don't even know what it means usually, but you can't be that. Um, yeah. So there's a certain, or you should believe in standpoints and unique knowledge attaching to yeah. the oppressed, right? So there's that sort of bundle of stuff. But in the book, I think the most important commitments of the, the lib fam or the mainstream feminist are sex workers work, trans women are women, and feminism must be intersectional. And I sort of take on all of those claims. Well, so we're going to talk about those those things, but before we get there, um, because you devote uh, a fair amount of the book to intersectionality, I have some questions there, and, and also to uh, the sex industry. Um, but before I do that, well, there's an interesting point fairly early on, maybe it's in chapter two, where you give um, an argument uh, to the effect that uh, I mean. You, that gender critical feminism as a theory of feminism has better explanatory and predictive power than mainstream feminism or live them, right? Whatever, whatever we call it. Yeah. I think that's a really important. You cut out again. There you okay. <laughs> Is that working? Yeah, you're back. It, um, you got up to. I think that's a really important. And then you froze. <laughs> um, I can't remember what I was saying was important. Um, um that okay, so, critical feminism has more explanatory power. I think. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so the gender critical feminism has more explanatory and predictive power than this alternative, and that's something when you're just sort of deciding among theories of something, right? Um, one of the things we want is um, explanatory and predictive power. And so I think that's uh, an important point. And I was hoping you might elaborate a little bit there about the kind of phenomena that you think gender critical feminism better explains mm. and what sorts of behavior or social patterns it better predicts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess you could do this in both directions, right? You could talk about whether it has a better story to tell about women's historical oppression. So it, why and in what ways they have been subordinated or denied equal social power. And you could tell that story going forward. Who picks out, which theory picks out a clearer constituency, unifies them for purposes of political action or solidarity, um, and, and how does it do that? So one way is just like it has a very clear constituency, right? There's no messing around 
trying to figure out which intersex cases fall on which side and what type of transition is sufficient and is it gender yeah. expression or role or performativity or identity or, no just females stop it yeah. right so that's clear um, and then because it has this commitment to the second wave conception of gender in the sex gender distinction which is as this set of external norms that are applied to people on the basis of sex it can explain all sorts of um, you know things to do with like pressure that might be applied differentially to the sexes to fulfill certain sorts of stereotypes or expectations and those things can be kind of measured empirically right like Cordelia Fine and Delusions of Gender goes through a bunch of evidence about you know you can disguise babies so they look like the opposite sex and then see how differently parents play with them and there's just yeah. tons and tons of literature on this stuff right so um, you just get a better story about what are these differential norms or pressures or you can track the sorts of sanctions that might be applied and you can sort of test this in different cases right so like the um, the Amy Stevens case in the US, you've got a, a male person who wants to transition to work as a woman in a funeral parlor and so wear the women's uniform. The, the gender critical feminist is going to say, I predict that person is male, they're going to be held to standards of masculinity and masculine dress and they're going to be sanctioned for non-conformity to the male standard. Is that yeah. in fact what we saw? Yes. Right. So they've got one story. You try to tell that story. Just, 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 just sorry, just to interrupt. This individual was fired, and that's why. That, that's the question is why were they fired? And, and gender critical feminism, for the reasons you just gave, can explain exactly why they were fired. Yes, exactly. Whereas if the gender identity theorist was to try to scramble around for an explanation, what are they going to say? Oh, here we've got a woman, because it's identity that determines what you are the woman wants to wear the women's uniform at work well, why would that be a problem all the women are wearing the women's uniform at work why was he fired right so there's just certain situations like that where actually you know the gender critical feminist has a straightforward story to tell about what gender is and what sex is and how they work together and the gender identity theorist not just in that case but for the entire thousands of years of women's subordination what's their story Right? Oh, my identity. Oh, all of those women just didn't identify as men. Is that why they were repressed? So, yeah. So that's kind of what I meant. Um, yeah, that, and it's sort of that that particular case I thought was really interesting, and I think it, it I think it it, it it's, um, illuminates uh, the, the 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 precise way in which gender critical feminism does have this kind of explanatory and predictive power, um, and also I think is related to what sort of counts as I mean, everybody seems to agree that there's something that that's gen, that, that there's something that it is to be gender nonconforming. Yeah. And without a kind of um, foundation of sex, it doesn't really make any sense. So yeah. you get people saying things like, "Oh, it's you know, trans people are really the sort of gender benders and all that." And and you're exact. And it seems to me you're exactly right. Like if if gender identity is what determines this person's gender, yeah. Then why would, should we think that it's non-conforming or gender bending or radical yeah. for this individual who identifies as a woman to dress in the way that women are traditionally expected to dress? They're just being women. Totally. And it's like the most conservative thing that you can hope that a woman would do is wear a dress or whatever it is that she's expected to do in that time, in that place, in that culture. Yeah. 
Um, so, so what exactly, where is the gender bending happening? Where is the sort of radical questioning of gender going on that these people are claiming to be doing, right? It just, it, it sort of, it, it becomes, uh, incoherence is a strong word, but it, yeah. it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now that you say that, I'm sort of wondering, because I was teaching um, about uh, some philosophy of sexual orientation stuff today, and one of the Sorry, the, the point I'm going to raise is I wonder what changes when the society itself starts to fully buy into the gender identity or the gender role. So one of the examples that we were talking about is Fafafine women in Samoa. So they are fully acknowledged to be male, but living as women, yeah. right? So there's not this conflation between sex and gender role. But they get away with having gay relationships. That was one of the questions in the class. Like, is is that gay, right? Because <laughs> on some of the theories of homosexuality, it was attractions between sex gender roles. So they're trying to sort of fudge so that you could say that's a heterosexual relationship when it's between a, a, a male and a fafafina woman. Um, so I'm sort of wondering now with the explanatory stuff, if the whole society thinks the man living as a woman is a woman and doesn't consider that gay, right? Then they're not going to be stigmatizing him for sexually non-conforming behavior relative to male standards. So there is this question. I mean, I guess that was always the case, right? The, the, the ex explanation of the discrimination is going to depend on the attitudes of the society. And in most societies, yeah. we track sex, and conformity relative to sex, but maybe there are some societies that have carved out these sort of exceptions where you actually right. can be non-conforming in these specific ways to do with your sexuality or your dress, so long as you've yeah. gone into that category. Yeah. Yeah, those are interesting. And these, you know, you've had some discussions recently with people just about sexual orientation because there seem to be uh quite a few people, I guess, given their commitments about the sort of ontology of gender or the metaphysics of gender that think that orientation has to do with gender identity rather than with yes. sex. Yes. And so you get questions like, well, what about straight men who are attracted to trans women, mm -hmm. right? And then, of course, I think, of course, I mean, the answer has to be, well, I need to know more about like what, what the body of this person is like. So um, you know, we sometimes make mistakes, yeah. right? So like a straight man, this is the example I use because I think anybody, any, any sort of straight man has had this experience and I'm sure it happens to people of every orientation. You might see someone from a distance. You might see, you might be on a beach, right? And see someone with like long hair who has kind of a feminine body from a distance. And you might, you know, for a second, yeah. Or, or for a minute, whatever. And, you know, but of course, once you realize that it's a man, if you're a straight man, you're no longer interested. Right. And the question is, you know, is there a point, could you imagine a point at which you would maintain interest despite the fact that this person is a male? And I think the answer is yes. I think if somebody has gone through full medical transition, a straight man could be attracted to this person, sleep with this person, and still would be considered straight but the explanation there is that they for all intents and purposes have adopted have, have gotten the body of a female yeah right and so it, it does, it's not like these cases raise especially sort of deep puzzles um mm -hmm. you know it's not that we're attracted to the 
sexed soul of an individual, we're attracted to, I take it, certain kinds of bodies. And that's what Brown's sexual orientation. Yeah. Um, but no, I really see those as common examples. I agree, but it'll yeah. be tricky because I, I think it's the, just, this is just from one documentary I watched, so I don't know how accurate it is, but I think even with the like Fofafina uh, uh, grouping, there's still different types. So there's transsexuals, but then there's what we would yeah. say is transgender. So they've got their penis still. Uh, yes. And so you've got all the different like uh, degrees of transition. And so I guess you still yeah. are going to have the harder cases where it's like two male bodies having sex in the way that males would have sex, but somehow yeah. it's not stigmatized as gender non-conforming in the I way see, that it yeah. would be between two men. And it is, yeah. there is homophobia, but somehow compatible with this one way of doing it. <laughs> so that's interesting, yes, yeah. I think. Yeah. No, that is interesting. And there's a, there's a question of sort of what's stigmatized and why. Yeah. And then there's the question of, is that, are, are they having gay sex? Yes. Not. And I think that you could say, well, clearly this is sex between two males. Yeah. I mean, here's another question. In their history, are they generally only attracted to other people who have this kind of body? Mm. Or... Mm. Is this an exception for them, right? So you need to know, that's why you sort of need to know more about their dispositions and the sort of their, their behavior historically. Yeah. But those are two different questions, I take it, right? Like what's stigmatized and why? Yes. So you can yes. imagine this is something that doesn't, doesn't stigmatize that, right? And yet still uh, believe that it is uh, a gay relationship. Yeah. Well, I was sort of thinking about it in relation to the Amy Stevens type case. Like there we know we have these norms of masculinity about what a male person should wear and it's certainly not a skirt suit. And so we can explain what we would expect to see him be, what we should expect to see him sanctioned for relative to being male. Yes. And then you would make the same point about the sexuality of a male, except there are these interesting carve-outs in some societies for some things. And so, yeah, I guess I was just getting on a rabbit hole of like, hmm, <laughs> yeah. And no, no, no. I mean, you can, you can have you can have sanctions on the basis of expression. Yeah. Right. Don't track the meta. Don't don't track sexual orientation. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So here's a, a, a possible. Well, I'm going to phrase this in the form of a criticism because this is something that. Uh, you've been criticized for. It's something that Kathleen Stock has been criticized for. It's something that was uh, mentioned in the uh, so-called open letter, which wasn't really open uh, to the university press, which is that you don't engage sufficiently with uh, literature. Um, And so by the literature, so you do in your book uh, discuss the work of uh, trans-inclusive feminists. Uh, you you um, discuss the work of Dembroff. You discuss the work of Sally Haslinger. You discuss the work of um, um, Jenkins. You don't, though. I, I, I take it there's some other area of scholarship that these people are referring to. Maybe it's the scholarship that's emerging or has has uh, been done in gender studies departments or queer studies. And, you know, there's this kind of objection that you're not doing your scholarly work because you're not engaging with that literature. Mm. Um, what do you what do you say there? Because, um, you know, it's not just a matter of people wanting to be cited. They might truly believe that there are views that have been defended 
in in these domains, right? That you're being sort of um, that you're that you're failing to engage with, and therefore your arguments are um, uh, not doing what they need to do to to sufficiently establish your position. Yeah. Um, so what? So my first defense, I guess, is just I'm a philosopher and I'm reading primarily philosophy. Um, yeah. You know, I think is this something to the thought that you depending what your subject is you would kind of read more widely there i think so i mean i'm currently working on sexual orientation and gender identity and i'm reading shit tons of empirical literature because some of my questions are empirical right or they matter for the philosophy so i certainly think you need to do that um do i think i need to trudge through first personal biographies telling me that those men are women and why i have trudged through quite a few but i can't say that i've like come away suddenly convinced at any point that that that, that that's true um no. maybe there's some literature yeah hosted in gender studies or i guess that's where it would be right or sociology or criminology or something about trans perspectives that's not first personal but has some argument where it's just an astonishingly good argument that yet hasn't made it through into the philosophical literature and that would really change right. my mind maybe i'd love to know what the reference is so i can save some time um but yeah i can't say i'm super moved by this criticism um well, yeah so that, that's one of the things that is a bit puzzling uh about again the sort of professional approach to these Topics. So if you if you just go to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and read about feminist approaches to sex and gender, yeah. um, it seems it's it's just acknowledged. It's acknowledged even by those uh, writers who are arguing for trans inclusive accounts of what it is to be a woman. Um, that the common sense everyday usage of woman and man, the term the words woman and man refer to you know, adult human females or adult human males. And then their project is a sort of ameliorative project, right, where they're saying, well, look, we have these political aims, and so we want to construct this account of woman yeah. that is inclusive of trans women, and, right? But it's clear what they're up to, and they don't, it's not that they're hiding this, right? That there's a certain political aim, and they think there are good ethical reasons and political reasons to adopt this other concept. Yeah. And yet the way, and yet, and yet the way, the, the response to sort of your approach is to say, is to, as if there's some kind of fringe view, that it's just like a, a crazy fringe view to suggest, right, that a woman is an adult human female. And you do want to know, and, and I've looked myself, like, well, where are these accounts? Yeah. And you ask people and you get things like, do your own research, or I'm not going to do your emotional labor for you, <laughs> or, I, but but like where are the, I, I'm aware I'm aware of the Jenkins I mean, did you discuss Jenkins I'm aware of the Haslinger and we you know, we can have philosophical discussions about whether those work mm -hmm. or whether ameliorative um, approaches are philosophically wise or, or prudent to begin with right there's those really important interesting questions but the notion that there are these like competing well spelled out views of gender that we're somehow missing. Yeah, <laughs> I'm recalling an anecdote. I don't want to like tell who the people were because I can't remember exactly the substance. But there was an a a AOP, so the Australasian Association of Philosophy Conference in New Zealand, 
where one of the establishment feminists apparently made this move in the question time of, I think, a keynote. Um, so did this like, oh, the literature, da 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 da. And the, <laughs> I don't know if he was being a dick or, or trying to be woke, but the keynote, as far as I've been told the story, said like basically carved out time so that she should tell what the literature is and so she tried to hand wave oh like i'm not i'm not going to take up the whole question time telling all the sources or whatever but you know you should have read them and then he says oh no no i think we can actually skip because this is very important <laughs> like really put her on the spot and she just wouldn't and apparently it was just sort of mortifying for everyone involved because usually these people can get away with doing that move right oh the literature over there that i refuse to tell you what it is but it definitely is there and it definitely establishes this point right and it sort of i think revealed right. the lie of it right that, that, that it's bluster um so i can't remember what the it was one of the orthodox feminist topics but i can't remember exactly what the topic was i just know who the, yeah. who the people were but yeah i think it's a common move I don't know why if there was some brilliant stuff they wouldn't want to share it so that seems a bit suspicious <laughs> yeah. um, no yeah. that's right and, and, and in fact it goes even deeper than that if you read um i mean if you read dembroff when you read dembroff on gender i haven't read everything they've written right but, but i've read some um if you read talia betcher how you say talia yeah. betcher okay um when you read uh, Sophie Gray Chappelle, you see that thoughtful, intellectually responsible academics themselves, trans writers, aren't committed to this sort of like, aren't necessarily committed to what it is to be trans as a, some kind of inner state or inner belief. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, you have uh, in this interview that uh, Sophie Gray Chappelle gave, she says, look, for, for me, being a trans woman is about having a very strong and abiding desire to have the body of a female. Mm -hmm. That's a perfectly sensible thing to say, right? I'm a male. Yeah. I want the body of a female. Yeah, I have this desire. Yeah. I have this desire. And we know what desires are. We can talk about the desire. And then we talk about how we can understand an identity in terms of a, an abiding desire in this, right? Or something like that. Yeah. So you get this sort of mainstream view of gender being a matter of identity that isn't even really, it isn't even, and if you question that you're a transfer, but when you read what trans writers are saying themselves, yeah, it's not they're not that. even to that view. Yeah. Well, I wonder if some of them right? do in some discipline or other, like maybe the queer studies ones do, the ones we're not reading. Um, okay, but why aren't philosophers, yeah. why aren't they listening to other philosophers who, who are trans and who are telling, right, who are, who are complicating this issue? Right, or why aren't the philosophers, usually if there was some prominent uh, non-philosopher saying credible things somewhere that someone cared about, right, one of the philosophers would bring them in as their buddy and be making their views better known, and that's not happening. That's, um, right. so, that's not happening either. Yeah. Not, very bizarre. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I, I wanted to ask you, because one of the, I think probably, well, to, to my mind, one of the most sort of provocative things that you do in the book is you call into question feminism's commitment to intersectionality. Yeah. Um, and intersectionality is, you know, uh, a, a very sort of important um, theme, uh, concept, and so on. 
for anybody these days uh, thinking about writing about um, sort of social justice issues. And so uh, could you say a bit about, about your views on intersectionality? And then I want to ask you um, this more specifically about a, a case that you discuss in the, in the chapter on intersectionality um, that I think you attribute to um, um, Crenshaw, if I'm not mistaken, about a group of uh, Black women who were fired. Mm-hmm. Um, and they couldn't argue that they were fired because they were women, because the white women weren't fired. And they couldn't argue that they were fired because they were Black, because the Black men weren't fired. Yeah. Anyway, so, so say a bit about intersectionality and we can talk about that. Case and I have a different kind of case that I wanted to, to, to push you on a little bit too. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, uh, I would say every type of feminism today, I think that's true, thinks it should be intersectional. So it's become sort of cross-cutting rather than like, well, you're a liberal or a radical. It's sort of like, no, we're all intersectional. Um, and the thought there being, <laughs> maybe, so sorry, it's complicated, but maybe one early thought was kind of about uh, multiple systems of oppression and the way in which or whether they kind of uh, interlock, so whether kind of class comes along with sex oppression and the extent to which they could be disentangled, that's a simpler idea. Then Crenshaw comes along and sort of turns it into intersecting in a way where the parts, this, um, the whole might be more than the sum of its parts. So you yeah. kind of get this idea that like when race oppression inter- intersects with sex oppression, it's not just the sum of both, you get this kind of novel, extra bad stuff going on. Um, And then somehow that's kind of the academic chronology and the sort of political one from the, again, the 70s activists kind of pushing identity politics in these combined ways. But then you get the trickle down out of academia and that politics into the sort of everyday understanding and the everyday understanding is just maybe something like you have to take into account all aspects of persons because persons are like complex bundles of privileged and unprivileged characteristics. And together you get a kind of winner and a loser hierarchy. And that determines who gets deferred to and who counts as privileged and therefore ignorable and who deserves the bulk of the resources and attentions and it sort of creates a pecking order. So there's a bastardization of it. There's an interesting two real versions of it. Um, and it's all kind of a mess in how it's talked about and understood today. But I think the pernicious effect of it is that that bastardization version has made feminism about and for almost everyone and almost everything. Um, did that make yeah, sense? And, and you- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I want to I want to ask a little bit more about the sort of intellectual version or the scholarly version, but um, it does make sense. And the reason you're going to oppose that in defending gender critical feminism is because you think uh, of you're thinking about females as a cast 
right, that should have, uh, that should, you know, that we should be, that we should think of feminism as a movement for and by uh, people who are members of this particular caste. And so once you start bringing in all these other uh, dimensions along which someone might be disadvantaged or oppressed, you sort of dilute yeah. feminism. Yeah, right? and it's really important. Be- it's not as though those people in the group don't have races, right? So the useful yeah. distinction, I think, is between is feminism a movement about women as women? So in the yeah. aspects of their lives to do with their sex or their socialization on the basis of their sex, or is it a movement for and about just the improvement of women as people? And then you might think, okay, yeah, if it was people, it would be sort of like doing national government, right? Like, of course, the government of Australia is for Australians as people in all of their welfare needs, right? So, of course, it's interested in their health and their poverty and so on. Is feminism like that? And some people think it is. Some feminists think it is. And that's probably why they talk about race and poverty and all the complex intersections that make up a specific person's experience. But I think it's at least open to us to also talk about this movement that is really about femaleness and the social construction of femininity imposed onto femaleness and what the stereotypes of women and women's sexuality are. That's that's something else, right? And I think even if you think there's room for both movements, that one's surely not ruled out a priori in any way. So I'm sort of defending that um, as more tractable. Yeah, if I'm understanding one of the things we might lose, worry about losing. Can you start again? Uh, through that, intersectionality. Sure. Sorry, just that sentence. Yeah, one of the things you might worry about losing by adopting this sort of like robust intersectional approach is so, right, the sort of history of racism, uh, the history of classism, the history of ableism. The mechanisms by which those work, yeah. the history of sexism, the mechanism by which those work um, differ. So, I mean, one of the things you notice among people who are really committed to this intersectional view is that you end up kind of committed to the view that there's just this kind of one bad thing that's yes. like oppression, yes. or it's just like injustice. And it's yes. like, well, there's no, like, what do you, what is this platonic form of injustice? that does all this bad stuff to people along these axes. But there's no kind of explanation. There's no explanatory force that, well, why is it, you know, how exactly, right, does racism keep people down, right? right? And are the people who are interested in preserving that the same people? Is the history the same history? Are the mechanisms the same mechanisms by which, women understood as a you know a female caste are that they're kept out and the answer is that well maybe i mean there's overlap but it's not the same thing no. and we lose and we lose analytical power totally when we, we just say there's just this bad thing called oppression mash it all together um, i know and i think part of the diagnosis of that is just that people are conflating the first personal experience of being oppressed when you have multiple Uh, disadvantaged aspects to your identity with what the world is like that makes that the case and so I think because a lot Kate Phelan and I have a separate paper on intersectionality where we do a bit of disentangling of this stuff so it's I'm sort of drawing on that a bit in the book but but we're doing it more over in this paper 
but it's like yeah the the phenomenology of oppression to say a black woman that might be totally like for her it just feels like one thing coming at her and maybe she can sometimes tell but she can sometimes not tell which of it yeah. which thing it is is it sexism or racism or is it both but we could we could accept that 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 it feels like one thing or that you don't always know which thing it is without accepting that when the world delivers discrimination or differential treatment or oppression to you that it is one blob which is exa exactly what you're saying i think we lose heaps of important explanatory stuff if we say that the oppression out there is just a kind of blob but 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 does this does this mean and this is what i'm not sure about your view here does this mean that we should not adopt or approach certain kinds of disadvantage intersectionally that we so so here's yeah. let me give you a kind of uh case so there's this interesting report i use this sometimes in my my free will seminar when we're talking about kind of um, actual judgments and and, and um, applied sort of um, judgments of, of moral responsibility. Um, this was a report on, uh, by the, from the Center on Poverty and Inequality at Georgetown uh, Law School. Uh, it's called Girlhood Interrupted, the Erasure of Black Girls' Childhood. And so there's this really um, sort of depressing uh, and important data on how, on the adultification um, of, of black children in the United States, right? So you look at sort of the judgments of police officers or just ordinary citizens, and people tend to judge the ages of kids differently based on their race. Mm -hmm. So um, so what that means, right, is that they're held to, they're, they're sort of, their attributions of moral responsibility or criminal responsibility are going to differ. If you think a kid is 15 versus nine, yep. right? Yep. One of the manifestations of this, with respect to girls in particular, black girls in particular, is their judgments about how much they know about sex or how sexual they are. Right. right? Now, one, one complicating factor there is that black girls, at least in the United States, also go through puberty earlier. Okay. Okay? So they start develop their bodies start developing earlier. So they might appear to be older than they are, right? Now, a further wrinkle here is that one of the sort of my, I'm not an expert in this area, but my understanding is that one of the explanations or plausible explanation for why black girls go through puberty earlier on average than white girls is because of envir there's environmental factors, right? There's more chemical exposure and so forth in the environment as a result of socioeconomic status, right? Poverty and things like that. So you get class, race, right? Um, and sex yeah. all coming together such that black girls, right, are sexualized and viewed as being more sexually mature at an early age. Yeah. And that seems to me like a genuine case. Like if there's a kind of inner, like a, a way of, there's an analysis there that if you just think about it in terms of sex, you're going to miss something. If you think about it just in terms of class, you're going to miss something. And if you think about something, think about it just in terms of race, you're going to miss something. So I wonder what you think about, and you know, in your, at the end of the book, you have a manifest. You have a, a feminist manifesto, and and one of the one of the things that you want one of the um, worries that you have there the hypersexualization of black women. So this is yeah. kind of in that ballgame too. So how do you, how do you think about a case like that? And maybe that's maybe those cases are somewhat unusual, or maybe we can say we can apply an intersexual lens, intersectional lens when um, for such cases it doesn't follow that feminism. Um, 
per se has to be intersectional. Yeah, so I think what I end up saying in that chapter in the book is that um, there's going to be a lot of cases where uh, the oppression is merely additive. And in those cases, there's no reason why we couldn't just have separate social justice movements taking care of each. The only cases that I think are candidates for feminism to take on, but it's not necessary or obvious that feminism should, maybe some movement should, maybe a new movement should, but the only candidates are these cases where you get more than the sum of its parts oppression in the Crenshaw way. So I think the question we would have to ask about your very nice example would be whether if you kind of solved poverty and you solved racism and then we resolved sexism, would that girl's situation be fully resolved or would there still, you know, would, is it like if you solved class and race? I don't know how to do that. If you, if you solved yeah. one, would there be more of the, right? So um, what's the thing that's causing more than the sum of its parts or which things would knock it out? Um, so that's the, and just to sort of say on that topic, I teach on the subject and I always try to gather the best cases I've come up with so far for where something is genuinely intersectional in that way. And this yeah. semester I was really pleased because I thought I had about three or four cases. And in the course of the tutorial, the students managed to convince me that two of the three, I think, there was one standing at the end so even though I was like oh, I've found these really great cases they're like no actually that is just poverty and sexism but it's not poverty sexism in <laughs> this particular novel way um so I would have to like think through the details of that case more but yeah that would be what it hangs on whether that is just the three kind of coming together but not in a way that's really like creating novel oppression um okay or not yeah and i don't have a clear instinct about that um right now yeah I, I, I think it's an interesting it's case interesting, I, I, I think it, yeah. yeah i can send you that i can send you the report yeah please yeah because that might be yeah. one i can give my students next year and see if they can debunk yeah. it <laughs> now that to be clear i mean that the, the, uh, the, the black boys are also adultified yeah right? okay. So it's not so so right. clearly right, but it's 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 the it's the manifestation of the adultification. In the case of the girls, there's a sexual yes. kind of sexualizing that yes. you don't have in the case of boys, right? And so that's where maybe you can pull these things apart, right? Because yes. it's affecting both the boys and the girls. Yes. But the because of sort of sexism, it's the way the girls are sort of disadvantaged, further disadvantaged. Yeah. Now the boys are disadvantaged in other ways too that the girls aren't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Also, do also do this. Also do the sex expectation. You know, uh, expect gender expectations on the basis of sex, right? Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I know I I know it's it's late in Australia. I thought um, one of the other uh, one of your other uh, sort of central topics in the book is uh, the sex industry. Yeah. Um, and so. Um, I I had your sort of. Um, you're really worried about the sex industry um, and you give uh, lots of arguments for why you think uh, that in ideal world, it would, abolitionism is really sort of the ideal approach. Um, so I'm going to ask you a little bit about that because that's, that's, become, that's one of the central commitments, uh, gender critical feminists uh, from sort of what you call mainstream feminism and sort of 
sex workers work and, and, and so forth. Um, in, so I, do you think, uh, I'm trying to figure out what you think is, you, you explain why you think that prostitution um, is bad for women. And a lot of it has to do with, I mean, there's, there's sort of like, it's bad in itself because there are certain things that are inalienable perhaps, right? That you ought not to commodify your body. And that's, that's a kind of objection to prostitution that doesn't hang on the sort of larger social background in which prostitution happens, right? So we know that, you know, it's, it's not rich women being trafficked, mm. right? It's, it's um, people who are disadvantaged uh, severely disadvantaged in many cases, who end up working as prostitutes. But supposing we could solve problems of sort of inequality, and supposing um, there weren't women who were working uh, in the sex industry due to kind of economic desperation, um, do you still want to say that uh, there's something objectionable about pornography or about prostitution? Right. Even in a world where uh, we have kind of gender or sex egalitarianism. Mm. And I know maybe it's so I'm just trying to figure out whether the objection is a kind of per se objection or whether really what's going on is that we have these like massive inequalities such that, you know, and, and we have these sort of um, um, such that men end up going and you know, basically using women for like as a kind of commodity, as a sex resource that they pay for. Um, and so even so people could agree with you there but say that there's nothing in principle wrong with that so i'm trying to figure out there's no yeah i'm at risk of going beyond the book in this answer because my next 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 book is about whether it's morally wrong to buy sex and it's focusing on the male the individual ethics of the male sex buyer and it's a debate okay. debate book which is just to say i've spent the last six months or so in the weeds of this debate and so I have specific views but I can't quite track what my views were <laughs> back for that book before they got here so I can just give you my answer rather than the yeah. book's answer yeah. Yeah. um that is uh that it's not an in principle argument so the position I'm at now is to say that it's really about the contingencies of our history and our world right now and what sex inequality looks like in our world and I think it's open possibility that if we got rid of sex hierarchy um, in some version of the future, that stuff, both pornography and prostitution, could possibly evolve. I think the practice would look quite different, um, but it could be morally non-objectionable. In saying that, and this is a point I have from, from Kate Phelan, who I talked to about this stuff a lot, she sort of pointed out, and I think is quite plausible, Maybe once we get to that world, right, we really have sex equality, it just becomes kind of unthinkable that we would want to be like paying each other for that stuff, right? Because the how we think about sex and how the relations are between the sexes is just so radically transformed. And so I am kind of agnostic about like what that might all look like, right? Because it is quite hard to imagine. Um, right. Yeah, that's it's really hard to disentangle. Um, the desires people have from the kind of social environment in which they live. So, right, yeah. so you could say, well, in principle, it, it, there's nothing wrong with it, but people just might not be interested exactly. in it once you have. But there's something about the inegalitarianism yeah. that leads that sort of the, the express or that the desire to buy sex 
is a manifestation or an expression of the inegalitarianism. Exactly. And that those desires go away once you have egalitarianism. And it's exactly. a question that you can't really test for until you have, um, I mean, it's, it's sort of like the, the debates among Marxists about whether people would really, um, uh, whether our psychology is such that, right, people would be uh, willing to live in a particular way, that they wouldn't be as selfish, that they wouldn't be, that they'd be motivated by the common good mm -hmm. as opposed to just uh, self-enrichment. And there are some people who say, no, it's capitalism, right, that perverts and distorts our desires and makes us rugged, makes us individualistic, mm -hmm. right? There's others who say, no, this is sort of a, a basic human um, a basic human impulse yeah. and that any kind of socialism has to take that into account. Yeah. Um, there's no real way to test for that, right? But but it's certainly possible uh, and quite interesting, right, to think that if you have egalitarianism, gender egalitarianism or sex egalitarianism, uh, the question wouldn't arise because it would just be seen as um, uh, undesirable or it wouldn't occur to people. Yeah, yeah. My co-author, who is arguing the sort of liberal feminist line, she thinks, um, I think she clearly thinks that there would be sex buying in that kind of future um, just because people might like not want romantic entanglements but they want sexual pleasure and so I think she probably has more in mind like yeah everyone kind of does it who has this functionalist approach to like human stuff and so women do it more but so it's got the 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 stigma is the wrong word, but the, the hierarchy is taken out of it, but there just will be some people that prefer the the ease and straightforwardness of a transaction that has structure rather than the like messiness of a hookup and an uncertainty. And yeah, so I sort of see the pull of that as well, but um, yeah. Um. Finally, I don't, I don't want to hold you too long, but I, I wanted to ask you, this is something I, I've been thinking about, um, and sometimes I feel optimistic and sometimes I feel pessimistic. Where do you think all this is going in terms of the kind of wider, there are these really sort of hot debates in the UK and Australia, US and lots of places about pediatric gender medicine, about single sex spaces. Yeah. Um, do you think, so, I mean, you, you might think the only thing that would stop the mainstream kind of approach is political activism um, by gender critical feminists and their allies and so forth, right? Another thing you might think is like, even if that particular view uh, became dominant, there's something about it, and eventually it just has to hit reality. Yeah. Right. So it, it's like it's it's not a um, what's the word? It's, it's not feasible, not because it will be stopped from political actors, but because biology doesn't budge. Right. And, and so it's just going to run into a wall eventually. That's or maybe it won't run into a kind of uh, wall. What do you think are the um, possible outcomes and what do you think is most likely? Mm, okay, you mean whether gender identity ideology is going to succeed and become the new normal, or yes. whether eventually it just cannot be made to work, and then we kind of just all swing back to... Yes, I mean, it, it could be not be made to work because of activism, it could just lose as a political movement, yeah. right? 
or it could win as a political movement, but then um, there could be some kind of um, because it doesn't work. Yeah, I think my inclination would be toward that. Like, I think it's had so much success socially and legally. Um, and in some countries, it looks, you know, like, I think we all think, oh, the UK is doing so well, so maybe we'll all be able to get there. But I'm really not sure of that. In Australia, you know, we we didn't have a consultation over moving to self-ID in Victoria. We just moved there. And then we suddenly banned conversion therapy in a way that meant that you have to affirm all young kids gender identities and so we 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 don't get to have the public debate the law's already passed the whole left-wing media is just relentlessly propagandizing all trans identities including children so i do sometimes worry that it's like it's kind of here to stay here but i think what will happen for sure is that for a while we pretend that there's just non-binary people who don't have a sex, but then at a certain point it will emerge, oh, only the female ones are getting raped, you know, or or there's certain problems that really differ by sex, or what's happening in single sex spaces, there's lots of like leering or groping or whatever. So these problems will just emerge that show that sex is still functioning underneath this gender ideology. And I think that will then encourage people to like at least make the distinction again between these gender identity categories and sex. So I'm sort of hopeful that sense will always reemerge as an alternative, but I'm not sure if we'll be able to like drop the whole thing of gender yeah. identity ideology. Yeah. And I think that's really quite a serious conceptual loss you know we talked earlier about the explanatory power of of like gender critical feminism but just having this even if you don't like the theory just having the concept of gender as this external stuff that's done to people we drop that now and we just think that it's a all of my students seem to think that it's just a subjective thing that you decide about yourself and then like put through in your action so they just they don't have the tool to think about how they have been treated since they were small babies um, and what people expect of them on the basis of their sex. Like they don't have that anymore. That's a, that's a loss. So I think it's a loss. And this is, I find it, I find it so strange. And I think there is a generational element, right? There's the younger people. And um, I know that, I know the term uh, epistemic injustice gets thrown around a lot, but there seems to be something going on here where, yeah people lose the ability to describe accurately their own um, sort of experience and their own lot in life. Yes. Um, yep. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think much of what's going on, a lot of it is purely supportive. A, a lot of it is linguistic, right? A lot of it is some, as people using different words, but yep. those words, people will find out, do find out, don't change material reality. And that's where I think um, there's going to be this persistent kind of pushback um, by people who need to use certain words to work with and discuss reality and so those too. who want to employ words in a way that um, don't correspond, right? Yeah, with, you might actually get this a lot in um, inside gay communities as well, right? So like maybe for a while, they're all going to go along with this idea that we're all just like men or women and it doesn't matter what the genitals are, right? But then surely some words or secret 
dog whistles or whatever are going to emerge to show who has the genitals you actually like and, and, and to that's pair right. people to get because that stuff is really important to people like who they date and who they have sex with and um sure. so i think that there will be a place where this stuff will re-emerge in some way or the other yeah so i mean yeah no that's right and people, they'll just be find new words to describe the same things yes. right um Okay, well, um, thank you very much. Do you have other things that you, you want to say anything else about the book? Um, no, or... I mean, no, it's been really nice to talk to you. Um, it's great to have a philosophical conversation about the book. Um, um, yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed the book a lot. I found it quite enlightening. Um, and uh, I like, you know, the early chapters where we talk about the history, especially, I thought, um, were helpful in sort of situating uh, gender critical feminism and explaining what it actually is so that people can learn for themselves uh, and not uh, come to believe that it's some kind of I don't know, <laughs> fascist movement or some, something really, really bizarre. So thank you for writing the book. Thank you for all your work. Um, and let's call it a day. Cheers.